Let's turn to the Word of God again as we seek to learn more of our Lord. Matthew 11. Uh, the section we're going through is verses 25 through 20, or sorry, 25 through 30. The final portion of Matthew 11. And I warned you last week that we would be going slow. And we're going to go even slower. Uh, a couple reasons really why we're slowing down through this section. And I, I told you last week it's because this is this is such a rich section. Um, it, it, it needs the time. But I've also learned um, it also helps me as a... Uh, inexperienced preacher to slow down a little bit. When I try to go a little bit fast, we get a little bit ahead of ourselves. And so I think it is best for me and for you as well that we take take our time. Um, I, I don't want to rehash a lot of this in Matthew 11, but it's it's difficult not to get into these sections without not understanding what's going on. But I do want to commend you not because I want you to hear me, but for the sake of being able to uh, smoothly go through this section of Scripture in Matthew 11. Use uh, the sermons online, if you've missed a portion of Matthew 11, to go back and, and catch up. Uh, we've, we've talked about the revelation of Christ in Matthew 11, how Jesus is not just revealing uh, himself but he's revealing the Father and the kingdom that has come. But we also have looked at the rejection of Christ, the rejection of John the Baptist, uh, who was pointing to Christ, calling for John's decrease and Christ's increase. But the rejection has come from this generation who called John demon-possessed and Jesus a glutton and a drunkard. Um and then 20 through 24 of chapter 11, again, we see the rejection of Christ uh, in these cities that he has gone and preached and done mighty things. Last week I mentioned to you that verses 25 through 29, 30, excuse me, uh, present to us wonderful but yet challenging truths of God the Father God the Son, man in their condition, and also the wonderful truth of the gospel that has come to us through the Son. Uh, we looked last week specifically at God the Father, and we broke it up into looking at two things from verse 25 and verse 26, looking at the, uh, the rule or the authority the sovereign power of the Father as Jesus gives praise to the Father and calls him Lord of heaven and earth. We saw that out of that sovereign authority and power uh, that God the Father has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. He has in his sovereign power and authority revealed and concealed to some true knowledge and understanding of the gospel of the kingdom of heaven that would lead to repentance and salvation. And we thought for a bit about that and maybe are taken back by that and remembered 
that as Paul talks of these things, that it does not bring him to depression or confusion or rejection of these truths, these difficult truths, but it brings him to worship. It brings him to adoration of who God is. But then we also looked in verse 26 about the good pleasure of God's will in doing these things out of his sovereign and out of his sovereign authority. Why would God desire to even reveal to some and conceal from others? Why would he care to do such a thing? Why would it please him to do this? And we saw that it would please him or that he would do these things for the sake of his glory and the declaration of his grace. Now, to not get caught up here in in rehashing all this out, let's move directly to verse 27. Now we're going to focus our attention this week on the Son. Last week was on the Father. This week will be on the Son. And as we look at the Son, we're going to see some glorious truths about redemption start to unfold. Because remember this section we've talked about revelation, rejection, and now we are unfolding these truths about redemption. Um, The more you know about Jesus, the more you're going to know about redemption or vice versa. And why is that? It's because that's what he came to accomplish. That was his purpose. We've read in John 5 and John 3 and all throughout the Gospel of John that Jesus says, I've come to do the will of my Father. Uh, Verse 25 gives us an idea of the will of the Father. We've already discussed this last week and touched back on it this morning. To reveal the truth of redemption to little children, to hide it from the wise and understanding. As we study this passage and as we look closely at the Son, we will see how the redemptive will of God comes to the world. Because here's what we have to think about. When you look at verse 25, you realize that the will and plan of redemption is where? In the mind of God. And where is he? He is in heaven. He is on his throne. So what we're going to find through 27 and 28 is how that will comes down to earth. How it is accomplished. How is it received? Can you understand how glorious this passage is? The fact that we are taking something from the mind of God, his eternal purpose and will, and seeing how it comes to us, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're going to see the revealing and accomplishing of redemption and not just that, but the receiving of salvation in verses 27 and 28. Now, as your pastor, I have a job, and that's to feed you, right? But there's also times where you, as your pastor, need to, I need to convince you that you need to be eating, which is kind of odd to say, but if you've had kids, you know that reality, that even though they should be eating, you have to convince them to eat. Well, likewise, 
uh, as sheep, sometimes you need your pastor to convince you that you're not eating or maybe that you're not eating enough. Maybe you're not eating the good choice meats. So what I'm trying to say to you is as I as I try to preach and deliver the word of God to you, feast, eat, do not leave food on the table. Enjoy, And it's not because of the way that I do it or how that I present it, but just in the simple fact that the quality of the food is worthy of your feasting upon. Okay? So know that and understand that. Uh, so we... we uh, we look to uh, the plan of redemption, the will of God coming down from heaven to earth. And I think it is helpful for us to, th- to do two things uh, before we really dive into verse 27. Um, this is going to take two weeks to get through this portion, mainly verse 27. And you're going to see why as we go along. But there's two questions that I want us to ask for you to be thinking about now and over the next couple weeks. Questions that seem similar, but in their content are very different. Here's the two questions that I want to ask. And this is actually touching on 27 and 28. First question that we ask is actually a question that's asked in Scripture. What must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? Where's the focus in that question? And I want you to understand the focus on that question is on the individual who is needing redemption, who is in need of salvation. The second question we must ask is, how am I saved? So again, the first one is, what must I do to be saved? The second question is, how am I saved? Now, while the subject of that question is still I, the the, the focus on the question goes beyond ourselves. And maybe we could ask the question a little bit differently and say, how is salvation accomplished? The second question is answered in verse 25, 26, and 27. How is salvation accomplished? The first question, what must I do to be saved, is answered in verse 28, come to me, come to Christ. Now, both of those answers, I'm sorry, the Bible answers both of those questions and our passage obviously does too, or we wouldn't have brought it up. But here's, here's what I want you to understand as we walk through 27 and 28 over the next couple weeks. There is a paradox of here's what you must do. But on the other hand, understand that salvation is found outside of yourself. Here is what you must do, but do not look inward for what saves you. Because what we end up doing when we look at ourselves is we elevate the thing that we must do. We elevate faith or our belief or our choice as our Savior. We completely undermine what we're going to understand today is the triune God's will and accomplishment and application of the redemption of, of salvation to us. Now, I know it was a mouthful, but we'll see it as we go through here. 
So what does it look like when salvation leaves the mind of God and comes down to earth? When it is accomplished upon God's creation? Well, the first thing is God becomes man. God becomes man, giving us what I like to call the God-man, Jesus the Christ. This will be the first thing we'll see this morning. Number two, while man does not know God, the God-man makes known God. And number three, the God-man, Jesus, calls men to come to God through him. So basically, God becomes man. Man does not know God, but God, the God-man makes him known. And then the God-man calls all men to come to him. That's a lot of man and God, but we'll see it as we walk through. Look at verse 27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Now, as you read verse 27, your mind should immediately go back to verse 25. And what to? Lord of heaven and earth. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, who is Lord of heaven and earth. So, what do we ask? Who is handling, who is handing over? What is he handing over? And to whom did he hand it? Those are the three things, three things that we need to consider this morning in verse, the first part of verse 27. Who is handing over? It is the sovereign God, the creator of all things, the supreme authority over all, Lord of heaven and earth. There is nothing outside God's domain, rule, and authority. We hammered that home last week. He is the one, God, the Lord of heaven and earth, who is handing over. What is he handing over? Everything. Everything. Think about it in the sense of a king, a prince, and a kingdom. At the end of the life of a king, he turns to his son, and what does he do? He delivers into his hand everything pertaining to the kingdom He is about to rule. All authority, all ownership, all power is transferred to the Son. Now, the analogy falls short. I know, I understand that. But what I want you to see is that everything that is under the authority, rule, and control of the Father is placed into the hands of His Son, put in his possession. All things. Now as we read this verse. And I, I mentioned. This is very John like. I want you to see a few things. That help us understand what is transferred. Turn with me to John. Chapter 3. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hands. Now, chapter 5, verse 21. Now see 
how the Father has something, but the Son also does too. Verse 21 of chapter 5. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. Verse 22. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Verse 26. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Verse 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Now look at chapter 13. Verse 3. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God. One more, 17, chapter 17, verse 2. Since you have, Jesus says to the Father, given him, that would be the Son, Authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. So here we see in this one little verse that is expounded on all throughout John that the Father, the Lord of heaven and of earth, who has all rule, dominion, authority, and power, gives it all to his Son. Every single thing. Now, we ask the question, to whom did he give it? But you you say, well, you just said to the son. But that's not what the controversy is about. As we go back, look at John chapter 5. Verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal to God. What is so controversial about Jesus saying, all things have been handed over to me by my father? He's a man. He's like you, a human being. Think about that for a minute. That there was someone walking the earth who ate, drank, cried, slept, nursed at his mother's breast, had a heartbeat and a pulse, but yet, was in control and rule and authority over all things. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to crucify him. This 
controversy is Christmas. God made flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. I I can't say it any better than Charles Wesley does in what we read earlier, the second verse of Hark the Herald Angels Sing. How is God accomplishing salvation? How is God sending or bringing his will of redemption from his mind in heaven to be accomplished upon the earth? Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time, behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus, our Emmanuel. There stood a man, yet there stood God. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. Shows us that there was a man who lived on this earth who we can call God, Emmanuel. This is the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And look what he says as we move on. And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. Two things should stick out to us as we read that. No one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son. The first thing is the relationship between the Father and the Son. And the second thing that should stick out is that man finds himself outside of that knowledge, outside of that relationship. The Father knows the Son, and the Son knows the Father. To know in this sense, I'm sure you've heard me say it, Dan say it, or a preacher say it. It's more than a simple possession of information. The fact that the Son knows the Father and the Father knows the Son isn't isn't that they know about each other. It's relational. It's a relationship. It's the difference between knowing that 2 plus 2 is 4 and a husband knowing his wife. It's the difference between knowing 2 plus 2 plus 2 is 4 and a mother knowing her child. The knowing is intimate. The knowing invokes love and oneness or unity. The father knows the son and the son knows the father and that's why we can connect we can connect when I read John 3:35, you don't have to turn there. We can connect the relationship with the handing over. The Father does not hand over to just anyone, but but the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. And then also another passage in John, we see uh, the relationship between the Father and the Son and how it is intertwined in what is being accomplished in redemption. On earth, it says this, 
I am the good shepherd. The son says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own knows me just as the father knows me and I know the father. And how does he accomplish redemption out of that? And I lay down my life for the sheep. He says, for this reason, my father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. See, what is intertwined between the Father and the Son is not just a relationship, but redemption. Redemption of mankind. Uh, This exclusivity, this communion and relationship, this fellowship, this oneness between the Father and Son is core to who God is. Yahweh, the triune God. And by nature... You find yourself outside of that fellowship, outside of that relationship. And this is why Jesus says to this crowd, no one, no one knows the father or the son. Now, I want you to also be thinking about that word no and connecting it to John 17, 3. When Jesus defines eternal life. To me, this is one of the keys that we cannot miss. Knowing God is eternal life. Eternal life is knowing God. Not informationally, but relationally, intimately, in love, in communion. And fellowship. But Jesus says no one has it. No one. Except the Son and the Father. If someone is not in the know, they lack knowledge. What's a slang phrase we might use? We say they're in the dark. Right? They're in the dark. They, they're, they're, uh, they're unaware. The truth is that man lives in the dark. Man lives in the spiritual darkness. The world in which you live, as, as Brother Dan was pointing out to us this morning at Sunday school, is in the darkness. But not only does the world we live in in darkness, but the mind and heart of man is darkened by their sin nature. Blind, the lights out, no knowledge of God outside of the intimate fellowship of the Father and the Son of our Creator. What again we go back to John. As the Son came to earth, he came as light and shined where? In the darkness, John 1, 5. John 3, 19, it says, and this is the judgment. The light, the light has come into the world and the people loved what? The darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. So as we finish, there are three doctrines that we must get right. 
We must get right the doctrine of sin and depravity. We must get right the doctrine of God and his holiness. And we must get right the doctrine of salvation. Now, why do I say all of that? Why do I say all that? Because you cannot understand redemption, the will of God to redeem a people for his own possession, apart from understanding our our sin and depravity, who God is, and how he saves us. Paul, going back to the idea of the darkness and us being outside of the fellowship of God, lends to getting our doctrine right of sin and depravity. We find ourselves outside of fellowship with God. Paul clarifies this for us, doesn't he? When when he writes in in Rome in Romans concerning the depravity and the sin of man, that all have fallen short of the glory of God. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one knows the Father or the Son. All have fallen short of the glory of God. No one understands. No one understands what? God. No one seeks. No one seeks what? God. No one fears. No one fears what? God. No one knows the Father. And no one knows the Son. We we live in a unique location for more ways than one. But we live in the Bible Belt. We live in a culture that has been built from Christianity. Again, mentioned this morning in Sunday school class. Uh, More so, not just this country, but this region, as we call the Bible Belt. And there's a danger to living in a place like this. And it goes it can go close with the saying that familiarity breeds content. Familiarity breeds content. I, I want to change it a little bit. Familiarity breeds a lack of respect or of reverence. Being familiar with God, growing up around the Word or in a culture of Christianity gives opportunity to make God common. And what is that the antithesis of? It removes God in our minds and in our hearts from His place of holy. To be common is to not be Holy, Because we grow up in Christian culture, Christian communities, Christian homes, we assume or can, I say it was probably a reality, we assume we all have a relationship with God. That we all know God because we've heard or we've been around. We assume we... Know God intimately. So what happens there? Our preachers preach with this assumption. Our parents parent with this assumption. Our lawmakers make laws with this assumption. But most 
most damning as believers believe with this assumption. That they know God because they heard him, heard of him, grew up in church, had Bible verses memorized. They know God like they know two plus two is four, but yet remain out of true fellowship with God. They remain in darkness. Because all the time that they have assumed, all that they have attained is information. And not a person. Not God. And when we have this danger of making God common, what happens is we tend to elevate ourselves. When we bring him down, typically we bring ourselves up. We forget. We forget who we are. Are by nature. We forget the doctrine of sin and depravity. It dwindles. And when our understanding of sin and our nature dwindles, then ultimately dwindling right behind it is our need and understanding of redemption. And then what follows is generations that say, generations that say, We have not fallen short of the glory of God. Generations that think that they know and seek and understand. When in reality, they are still in the darkness. We must not not weaken our doctrine of sin and depravity. So... Two things we do to, to counter this. And this touches on the doctrine of God and his holiness and the doctrine of salvation. How do we guard against familiarity breeding disrespect, a lack of reverence, of bringing the Lord of heaven and earth and his son to our level. Well, the first thing is we must discipline ourselves and our children to remember the truth of God's holiness. We must discipline ourselves and our children to remember the truth of God's holiness. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is what? Holy, holy, holy. There is no one like him in righteousness, justice, and wisdom. Preach this to yourself. Holy, holy, holy. Teach it to your children when you sit down, rise up, and when you walk. Bind the truth of the holiness of God as a sign on your hand. Put it on the frontlets of your eyes. Put it on your doorpost and on your gates. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of his glory. And you say, well, isn't that just going to breed familiarity and content? It's okay to become familiar with their reality that you are not familiar with God. It is good to be reminded that there is a chasm 
between the holy God and our sinful selves that we, within ourselves and on our own, could never cross. This familiarity of God's holiness, His otherness, leads to true and healthy fear of God and a life of reverence and worship. We must keep the doctrine of God's holiness before us and our children. The second thing is we must understand the difference between the two questions we started with this morning. Meaning we we must have a, a right doctrine of salvation. The answer to the question, the first one, what must I do to be saved, is answered in in verse 28. Come to Christ. Or is answered in other places. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Trust in Him. Have faith. But I want you to understand that what you must do to be saved is not the gospel. It is not what saves your children. It is not what brings uh, light into darkness, what gives sight to the blind. Our faith, our belief, and our choice is not how salvation is accomplished. Our faith does not bring the will of God from His mind in heaven down to earth. Jesus Jesus finishes this section with, as we said, this well-known invitation, come to me. Salvation is not achieved in your coming to Christ. You must understand that. Salvation is not accomplished or achieved in your response. And if we get that wrong, what do we do? But we elevate ourselves as the one who accomplishes redemption. We elevate ourselves as Savior. But as Job says in the belly of the fish, not Job, what's his name? Jonah says in the belly of the fish, salvation belongs to the Lord. For the Father, the Lord of heaven and earth, has willed the redemption in his good pleasure. He sent his Son to accomplish it. He sent his son and giving him all things to accomplish his will. He sent his son to be light in the darkness that the world might have life through coming to the light. And out of that love and intimate relationship, not only did the son come, but the son gave his life as a ransom for you. And you know what? It pleased the father that he died. But the son took up his life again. But it pleased the father that he laid it down for a wretch like you and me. When the son was on the cross, when Jesus hung, he said, it is finished. There, then, your salvation was achieved. Your redemption was accomplished. As the righteous Son of God hung on a Roman cross in sacrificial death. 
And as the Son's words are declared, the gospel of the kingdom is preached. Not only has the Father willed the redemption and the Son accomplished it, but out through the preaching of the words of the Son, the gospel of the kingdom goes forth, and the Son and His grace gives the Spirit of God without measure in order that, so that the light of the gospel will brighten your darkened eyes. And open your heart and mind to see who you are and who God is. And redemption in the outpouring of the Spirit, the accomplished redemption, is applied to our souls. Salvation willed by the Father, accomplished by the life and death of the Son, and applied through the outpouring of the Spirit of God. All that you may be brought into knowing the Father and knowing the Son, that you may know the one true God and Jesus Christ whom He has sent. In other words, that you might have what? Eternal life. The invitation stands. Come. To Christ and be saved. Turn to the Savior. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation, he has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Thanks be to God, our Father, for his gracious will. The Son that he has loved, lived, and died, and accomplished. And the Spirit that is given and poured into our hearts, and the redemption applied for wretch like you and I. And so we're going to sing, And Can It Be? And I want you to see those things in these hymns and declare them in your praise and worship of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Let's stand. Number 180.